I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. So I'm going to start the day basically repeating stuff I said yesterday. Why? Because I'm pretty sure I'm right. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program today, uh, 877-973-7425, 877-973-7425. I, I want to begin, I wasn't even going to start here, but I've just, the more I've thought about it, the more I am. I see the chatter. It is the big story of the day, the Supreme Court yesterday in the Louisiana abortion case. I want to walk you through this because I have a working theory here. And there are a lot of conservatives who are upset. And I, I, let's walk through this. Let me explain to you as someone who has been a part of the conservative movement, who knows the people who are engaged in uh, trying to pick and vet the conservatives. Uh, I, I want to, I want to walk you through my prevailing theories. Uh, it is, it's, it's important to me that we understand this, that we all get on the same page here. Uh, I think that John Roberts is done with Trump. That is my prevailing theory. I think that John Roberts believes institutionally and philosophically that he is supposed to protect the Supreme Court above all else that the Supreme Court is, um, it, it, the Supreme Court should be above politics, and so John Roberts has become political to make it. I, ironic, I realize. L- let me explain this to you, though, from the Supreme Court vantage point. If, if you listen in the conversations right now in a nation as divided as we are, you hear two things. You hear the president and his supporters say, that uh, they have won the battle of stockpiling circuit courts. You've got Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, and you've got so many circuit and district court judges now by Donald Trump. That's all they've done. The Senate hasn't been able to wipe their backside, but they've been able to confirm judges to courts. And so the left's response is, well, we, we have no shot at legal advancement in the courts. What we need to do now is we need to uh, add seats to the Supreme Court. And if you get Joe Biden in and you get a Democratic Senate, we're just going to ram things through. We'll get rid of the filibuster. We'll pile progressives into the Supreme Court and create new seats. They will do what uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted to do in the 1940s when there was what, if you go to law school, you learned about the switch in time that saved nine. You had a number of Supreme Court justices who were striking down FDR's uh, New Deal platform. And uh, FDR and the Democrats decided they were going to add seats to the Supreme Court. And so a majority of the Supreme Court changed their positions and FDR stopped uh, the, the effort to pack the court. It was called the switch in time that saved nine. Roberts is doing his own version of that right now. Look at what's going on in the land. You've got the Democrats talking about stockpiling the Supreme Court. You've got Republicans talking about having secured that the judiciary, even if Trump loses, the judiciary is in Trump's hands. And Roberts needs to exert the independence of the third branch of government to show it is not owned or controlled by either party. So what does Roberts do? Well, there was a case uh, three years ago, four years ago, when, when Scalia died, uh, there was a case before the Supreme Court on abortion regulations in Texas, very similar to what had happened in Louisiana. And, and Roberts wrote the lead dissent against the Supreme Court uh, striking down that Texas uh, law. He was opposed to striking down the Texas law. The Louisiana law is very, very similar to it. And Roberts never joins the left's reasoning. 
yesterday in the Louisiana case. He doesn't join the left. All he does is say, I'll allow it because of stare decisis. I'll allow it. And then he writes this very, very interesting line. I still think it is the most important line of the Roberts decision yesterday. And it's not his decision. Stephen Breyer wrote the decision. But the Roberts concurrence and judgment writes a very interesting line. That when the legislature imposes an undue obstacle to exercising a right, the courts must act. When the legislature imposes an undue obstacle to exercising a constitutional right, the court must act. Hello, Second Amendment. So what has Roberts done with his decision yesterday, with his decision to join the, the left? He upheld an abortion law that he clearly doesn't like because he wrote several years ago he didn't like this law and thought it was uh, it, it, or a decision he didn't like because he thought these laws were constitutional a few years ago. And all he's doing is saying stare decisis. And he's amplifying uh, that obstacles involve court involvement. I guarantee you the Second Amendment is going to use this line that the cases involving the Second Amendment that are that are coming. He didn't want any of these Second Amendment cases while Donald Trump is in the White House. Essentially, what John Roberts is doing is saying that the conservative legal revolution is not over. It's on pause until Donald Trump goes away because Donald Trump has been very braggadocious about stockpiling the courts. And because he's been stockpiling the courts, he decided that um, that John Roberts decided the courts need to show they're independent and they're independent by rejecting one of the big things conservatives wanted. While paying no attention to the fact that conservatives actually got a huge win at the Supreme Court yesterday. No one is talking about the the uh, the, the um, CFPB, the Financial Protection Bureau, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That was a huge win for conservatives, and John Roberts wrote the decision yesterday. And it was a more important decision, arguably, than the abortion. Now, listen, I realize uh, my pro-life friends out there, and I am pro-life, are saying, no, 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 there's nothing more important than the unborn. I, I understand. But in the grand scheme of constitutional structure, the CFPB decision was actually more important and actually went for conservatives overwhelmingly. A 5-4 decision, John Roberts wrote it. The CFPB essentially created a board that is funded by the Federal Reserve. The president appoints the head of it, and then no one can fire that person. That person gets to set all sorts of disruptive regulations can upend American society uh, from a financial aspect, go after banks and the like, is is super powerful, has a budget that is not beholden to Congress, and the president can't fire the person. Conservatives sued and said the very structure of this board makes it unconstitutional, that the president is the executive. All power of the executive branch of government flows from the president. You hear this talked about sometimes as the unitary executive. Under the the ideals of the founders, you had Congress, and then you had a president. And under the president, there were other people, and those people's power flowed from the president. Those people could not exercise power unless the president himself had power. The Consumer Financial Protection Division was board was put into the executive branch of government. That's where the administrative agency lies. Congress has created a number of administrative agencies and then made it very hard for the president, once he picks the person in charge, to get rid of that person. And yesterday, the Supreme Court said no. All power of the executive branch flows from the president, and the president can fire anyone who's not exercising his power. So the CFPB structure was bad. They're not going to rule the entire institution unconstitutional, as they rarely do, but the whole structure, the president gets to hire and fire. The president appoints, the Senate confirms, and then the president can fire at will.
just like any other appointee. That's actually a huge decision for conservatives that will benefit uh, government long term in the ability of conservatives to restrain the bureaucratic state. No one's paying attention to that one. They're paying attention to the abortion decision, and they're all scratching their head because Roberts, four years ago, ruled that the very law, or, or in a dissent, said the very law that the court threw out yesterday was fine. And yesterday, Roberts says, well, it's it's the court shouldn't be doing this because it's already decisive. I'm going to let them. What's going on here? It is John Roberts exerting the independence of the judiciary. Now, this is not a defense. Please don't hear me as defending John Roberts. He got it wrong yesterday. But I'm trying to explain to you what's happening. Look at the last several cases that have come up. Uh, go back two years ago to the census case. John Roberts clearly has had enough of the Trump administration and doesn't trust them. In the census case, the uh, Commerce Department at the last minute decided to add a question on whether or not uh, someone in your household has citizens. And it went to the Supreme Court, and John Roberts says, this is a perfectly permissible question to ask in the census, but you can't ask it. And the reason you can't ask it is because you waited until the last minute, you didn't allow public review, and then you had multiple members of the administration offer competing reasons that couldn't reconcile with each other as to why you were asking it. And that's true. You had multiple members, including Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, explaining why they wanted to add the census question, and all three explanations not only differed, but were in contradiction to each other. And so Robert said, the question's fine. You just can't do it in this way. Here's, if you want to do this in the future, here's what you need to do. If you want to roll something back from the last administration, here's what you need to do. So fast forward to the DACA case two weeks ago, what happened with the Trump administration? They did not follow what John Roberts said to do in the census case. They ran it through, and then you had multiple Department of Homeland Security, uh, Department of Homeland Security officials testify as to why they decided to roll back DACA, and each of them disagreed in their explanation as to why they were doing it. So Roberts, writing his DACA decision two weeks ago, says, hey, did you read what I said in the census case? This is perfectly legitimate for you to do, but you got to follow this procedure, which they chose not to do. And so he didn't let him do it. He's over Donald Trump. This is all about Roberts not only preserving the independence of the court, but there's something else he's doing here too. Roberts, I I'm beginning to believe based on his writings Roberts is the restrainer in chief. He is restraining the popular sentiment among the president right now. When Joe Biden becomes president, Democrats should be worried about John Roberts. With massive government programs coming, environmental regulations coming, Roberts is probably going to restrain them as well. He will not be consistent in his jurisprudence. He'll be consistent in his restraint. But then look at the gay rights decision. So in in the decision yesterday on abortion, Roberts says something that essentially that if if the legislature puts undue obstacles between you and a constitutional right, courts can act. And I read that immediately thought, whoa, this is laying groundwork for Second Amendment cases. Now look at the gay rights case from two weeks ago that Gorsuch authored. Here's how it operates on the Supreme Court. If the chief justice is in the majority, he gets to direct who writes the opinion. If he's not in the majority, the ranking justice in the majority gets to direct who writes the opinion. So if, if Roberts had not been in the majority in that case, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have directed someone to write the opinion. So Roberts and Gorsuch suddenly find themselves in the majority 
doing what was going to happen anyway. Let's be honest here. Uh, The Democrats probably are going to take the Senate and the White House in November. They see the writing on the wall. It's not guaranteed. The polling can still change. But if you're looking at the landscape of American politics right now, unless you're a true Trump partisan, you're thinking, eh, this thing could be upended in November. The Democrats are going to do this anyway. So let's do it ourselves. And we're going to write the parameters by which it can be done. So we take the issue off the table for Congress. Congress doesn't have to act. They're going to do it the way we want them to do it. And we're going to start dropping suggestions uh, that are favorable to religious liberty. Now, some people have read the decision and said, oh, no, this is going to be bad for religious liberty. I don't think it is. We've got a religious liberty case coming up. Now, if the religious liberty case that's coming up, the Catholic Charities case versus Philadelphia comes up and uh, the court throws out the Catholics, then, then my whole theory is screwed up. And sure enough, uh, we got a bunch of liberals on the Supreme Court. But I just think Roberts in particular is trying to restrain this president, is done with this president, doesn't trust this president, doesn't trust his legal team, has seen them come up with multiple competing, conflicting explanations for the things they want to do. He's told them all no. He's restrained them. And I think he'll do that to the Biden presidency as well. Doesn't mean doesn't mean he's he's part of the conservative movement. But I don't think he's suddenly of the left. I, I, I think Roberts is the chief justice of the United States, and he's trying to protect the court at a time the Republicans claim to own it and the Democrats claim they're going to pack it. They put him in a position where he thinks he had to do this. Rightly or wrongly, he thinks he had to do this. We'll see what happens with the religious liberty case. It's something he has long cared about. Will he abandon that as well? I don't think he will. I, I, I don't. I, I suspect we'll see a majority for Catholic charities coming up. I suspect we'll see a majority for Little Sisters of the Poor coming up. It's going to be very interesting, though, in these next couple of weeks to see what the Supreme Court rules. Uh, Their big opinions, they should be rolling them out uh, this week. And then they'll go home, and they'll come back in October, and we'll have an election. And if the lay of the land changes, I suspect you'll see John Roberts change. But I think that's what's going on here. Now, there's another angle to this, though, that we do need to pay attention to, and that is objectively with Roberts, the right has not made the advances uh, on the Supreme Court that they thought they had made. And what's going on there and what do they need to do? When we come back, let's discuss the advancement or lack thereof of conservative legal jurisprudence on the Supreme Court. So let's talk momentarily about the conservative revolution in the in uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, there are a lot of conservatives who are disenchanted, uh, who are disaffected, uh, given the both the discrimination case and uh, the, the twisted textualism of Neil Gorsuch to get there, and then the Roberts decisions on DACA and this. Uh, conservative uh, revolution. I'm seeing people write with an LOL in there, uh, conservative legal reform. Here's the thing. Uh, Conservatives have gone repeatedly for people who joined the Federalist Society and worked their way through the Federalist Society. And conservatives, frankly, if we're going to pick them like we pick our politicians, let's be honest. Conservatives, okay, I need to pause here. I'm about to sound very uncharitable to people who are really good friends of mine, and I don't mean to be, and I need to issue that caveat up front. But um, l- let's take uh, l- let's take the 
Um, look at the people who get elected to Congress all the time who claim to be pro-life and love babies, and they run very, very conservative in the primary and then turn out to be absolute squishes. The very same conservatives who rally to those pukes and squishes and get them elected to Congress are the ones who are rallying to the people who want to go to the Supreme Court. You come in, you you, you do a, a song and dance routine, uh, you hump the president's leg, you, you you kiss a few babies and talk about how you love Jesus and and you go to the, the right Catholic church with the right Catholic priests and, and love the Latin mass and oh my gosh, he's one of us, put him on the court. I mean, these people are getting played. They're getting played. Their, their egos are getting stroked and they're getting played. Now, uh, I happen to think that uh, John Roberts is uh, was a bit of an enigma that the um, the the Bush W Bush H.W. Uh, got a suitor. Uh, George got us Roberts. Roberts is definitely a, a, an upgrade from Souter, even though people are mad at him right now. But uh, they wanted somewhat of an enigma to get him through the um, the, the Congress. Recall at the time, you will recall, the filibuster uh, was still in place for judges, and the Republicans had no will to blow it up. But we're at the point where you do also need to understand that the buck also stops with the president. And there are people who go to the president and, and they stroke the president's ego and the president decides he likes them. The president l- likes his impressions of certain people. And when he likes his impressions of certain people, he decides to go with those people, whether he needs to go with those people or not. So to some degree, this is on the president as well. And that's just the reality of the situation. And as long as there are people who like to have their ego stroked and they are going to pick people for the Supreme Court. Well, they're going to pick the people who stroke their ego. Uh, I think Leonard Leo actually does a fairly good job of putting Leonard Leo in charge. We've actually gotten scores and scores of solid judges and justices. I mean, say what you will about the Gorsuch and the twisted textualism. I think Gorsuch is playing a game there. I I think he thinks it's coming anyway. Might as well get the Supreme Court to do it and and score some big gains uh, in the future for conservatives relying on a decision that was 6-3. And they can do some. They can they can protect Title Nine. Uh, that's uh, letting boys play in girls' sports. They can they can say no no. Uh, this only applied to Title Seven, not Title Nine. And and they can protect religion. I I think there are games being played. Listen, you want to put politicians on the Supreme Court. Don't be surprised when the politicians on the Supreme Court get political and play political games when they're not elected. Uh, they're not beholden to voters, and they can play long term games. That's the thing you got to understand here. Now, that's all we need to say about that. Guess what? There's a swine flu outbreak in China that looks like it could become a pandemic. Another flu, another virus coming out of China. Uh, The World Health Organization is beginning to preemptively warn people about this massive swine flu outbreak in China that could spread globally, another flu. Meanwhile, we're dealing with the COVID-19 surge in this country. It's not a second wave. We haven't even gotten over the first wave. Hospitals are beginning to be overwhelmed in parts of Texas and Arizona. Hospitalizations in Georgia have gone up. I said yesterday they had gone down and they had, and then I saw the note that they were actually back over a thousand and they're headed up in Georgia again, hospitalizations. This time, overwhelmingly nationwide, the number of people in the hospital are younger people falling prey to the falling victim to the virus. There's more we need to discuss about the virus. And meanwhile, the governor is going to start a statewide campaign in Georgia 
trying to get people to wear a mask. He doesn't want to mandate people wear masks. He just wants you to actually, well, wear a mask. And there are those who say they will not. We will discuss all of this. I will take your phone calls as well, 877-973-7425 when we come back. Oh, man, I do have a recipe that I need to send out this week. I, I, I cooked it myself this weekend. You can see it on Instagram. It, it is a, a grilled chicken shawarma. It's it's not a shawarma on a, on a vertical rotisserie, but you can throw it on the grill. Man, did it have good flavor. Wow. It was really good. Uh, I will send that recipe out. Uh, text the word recipe to 33777, and I will get that recipe out to you. I want to talk about the virus. Uh, we need to talk about the virus. My, my starting point is a Washington Post story uh, made it to the Houston Chronicle. I The, the story aggravates me. A hypervigilant mom followed every health guideline. She still caught the coronavirus, and uh, it it. it, it talks about what a harrowing situation it is to get the virus and, and you read this and um you, you you read this and you think wait a second this, this isn't that bad actually and it, it it frustrated me and and I want to talk about that in in terms of the frustration so this is a lady I, I don't I don't want to give you can find the article I don't want to disparage her I mean she she had what was for her a very difficult experience. She she remembered going to bed Thursday, um, May 21st, feeling a little more tired than normal, a little bit of an upset stomach, nothing unusual, woke up in the middle of the night feeling, uh, had the chills, not so much that I even got out of bed, but in the morning it had a 100.5 degree temperature and, and it is uh, definitely a fever and she became terrified. So she called her healthcare provider at 7 a.m., uh, she had had a baby. Uh, she had been breastfeeding. She was able to get the test, uh, and it was positive. So she went to bed. I, I want you to have this timeline. This is this is the Washington Post retelling of the story. She went to bed a little tired, woke up in the middle of the night not feeling well, woke up in the morning and definitely had a 100.5-degree fever, went and got her test, went home, got back in bed, woke up the next day and felt fine. Turns out she had the virus. Her husband uh, did not get the virus. They both cried. Uh, and so she has to, the husband disinfected everything in the house, washed all the kids' clothes, washed all the toys, uh, everything the wife could have touched. The wife stayed confined in their room. The husband had to go get tested. He tested negative. Uh, the child um, seemed to be doing fine. The wife couldn't breastfeed. She essentially had to lock herself in a room for 14 days. Um. That's difficult and a pain in the butt. And I've talked to several people who've had to quarantine like this. I, I don't know how I would do it. If I felt fine, I would want to do the show. Even if I tested positive, I guess I would I would live downstairs and, and walk down the hall spraying Lysol as I walked um, and, and come into my office and between my office and guest bedroom, stay quarantined for 14 days. I, I, I don't know. But um, that is the very mild case. She, she got 100... 0.5 degree temperature was quarantined for 14 days didn't give it to anyone uh her symptoms lasted for 24 hours and that was it that is the mildest of the mild cases and, and most people who get the virus now we're learning are asymptomatic they'll get it and never know it and that the good news there is that this dramatically lowers the mortality rate 
but we're still looking at about a 1% fatality rate, which is 10 times higher than the flu. About a, a tenth of a percent of people who get the flu die, and, and we're around 1% with this. Uh, among people tested, it's around 3 to 5%, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, Texas is around 1%. Georgia's actually been around 3% in uh, fatality. But here's the point. Uh, the virus is spreading again. We're not even out of the first wave. Uh, we flattened the curve so that people could get out and about, but people did not do what they need to do. And I got to tell you, I, I'm, I'm, hang on, I'm turning on the recorder here because I want this documented beyond a Facebook feed. I'm a little bit aggravated with the whiners out there who are whining about Governor Brian Kemp. Oh my goodness, why isn't he forcing people to shelter in place? Why isn't he forcing businesses to shut down? Why is he allowing restaurants to be open? Why am I allowed to go to work? Why, why, Governor, why are you doing this? Take responsibility for your own damn self. There's a virus spreading for which there is no cure. The cure right now is to shut down every business and ruin lives financially and allow kids to stay home with abusive parents and, and uh, those who are being abused by their spouse to be sheltered in place with those people and not let people get out of their house, not let people go about their business, not let people get haircuts. Why don't you just put on the damn mask and go out about your business? The, the number of people who don't even want to put on a mask, they, they would rather be sheltered in place than put on a mask, but some people don't even want to do that. And now we have the virus spreading and oh it's the protesters you know there are protesters who are spreading the virus but it's not just the protesters it's also the 20 somethings who are going out to bars and restaurants the 20 somethings on lake lanier here in georgia who've been on party boats spreading the virus amongst themselves exercise a little bit of personal responsibility there is no conspiracy here. There is no government conspiracy to restrain your liberty. There is a global pandemic and people in power are trying to stop it from spreading so we can go about our lives. And some of you idiots don't even want to put on a mask because it's my liberty. It's your liberty and the person next to you, it's their health and their life. All you got to do is be a good neighbor. But the idea that the governor should tell you to stay home uh, keep yourself home. Keep yourself home. There, there, there's no reason for you to have to have the governor of Georgia tell you to stay home when you can keep yourself home. You, you don't feel comfortable going to the store. Guess what? You don't have to go to the store. You don't feel comfortable going to a restaurant. Guess what? You don't have to go to a restaurant. You don't feel comfortable walking down the street. Guess what? You don't have to do that. It's not the governor's fault. It's not the governor's problem. That's on you. The idea that the governor of the state of Georgia should shut down our economy again because people are too damn irresponsible to be responsible enough to stop the virus from spreading through their own personal behavior. That's not the governor's problem. And yes, I am sorry for the language, but come on, people. This is on you. It's not on him. Stop making about him or any other governor. Do you notice the media wants to blame Brian Kemp and Ron DeSantis and Doug Ducey, but they don't want to blame, uh, what's his name, G Gavin Newsom in California, where the virus is running rampant, a 70% spike. They don't want to blame Andrew Cuomo, who built his model of the curb. Do you know the number of Daily deaths in New York still is, is more than other states. New York, New Jersey, and California still lead the nation in the number of cases contracted and the number of deaths. And yet they want to fixate on these southern states because the media is done with being fair and objective and they're all about partisan hackery to help Joe Biden. And that's part of the problem of the people bellyaching about Brian Kemp not doing what he needs to do to stop the virus because they don't like him because they voted for Stacey Abrams to begin with and they got a sympathetic ear in the media. All you need to do 
is stay home if you don't feel comfortable going out. And if you go out, wear a mask. Do you know why you wear a mask? You don't wear a mask because someone may have the virus and you could inhale the particles. That, that's not actually why you wear a mask. Do you, do, you, do you know why that's not good? Because most of you are wearing cloth masks and the virus, if you're next to the person when they cough, is going to, to penetrate your mask and you're going to inhale it and get it or, or it's going to get in through your eye or you're, or you're going to be one of those idiots who puts your mask on your face and doesn't cover your nose. You wear the mask because you may have the virus. And just as you cover your mouth with your hand, or your elbow when you cough, by covering your mouth, you mitigate the amount of water vapor that you release because the virus is spread through the water vapor that you release in your breath. And yes, your mask actually will work to mitigate that to some degree. Now, it's not perfect unless you're doing it in 95. It's not perfect. But if you wear an imperfect mask and the other person wears an imperfect mask, it actually makes a fairly perfect solution. Because if you breathe out and they breathe in, it minimizes what gets into their mouth, it minimizes what gets out of your mouth. If everybody does it, you actually reduce the virus. But you don't even have to believe me. Believe the fine people of Japan or South Korea or Taiwan or Singapore or Slovenia. All these places have reopened their countries. All of these places are open for business. All of these places have restaurants open. All of these places have bars open. All of these places have schools open. All of these places are going about their lives because their citizens are, it's my liberty. I'm not going to wear a mask because I ran on some random internet page that it's not going to help me anyway. Yes, it is, you idiot. The governor of the state of Georgia is going to do a campaign around the state of Georgia urging people to do the right thing and wear the mask. Do you really think The governor of Georgia wants to spend his time on a bus tour of the state telling people to put on a mask. No. Do you know why he's doing it? Because you're an idiot. And he wants you to wear a mask. It's not about your liberty. It's about your neighbor's health. It's silly that we've gotten to this point. It is silly that the ninny Stacey Abrams voters are mad at the governor because he's not forcing you people to stay home. He's not forcing businesses to shut. You know, you don't have to go out if you don't want to. They're still, they've extended unemployment benefits. Stop complaining about the governor, but do the right thing. If you support the governor, put it to you this way, Stacey Abrams is gonna run against Brian Kemp in 2022. Do you want her to be elected? Those of you who are listening to me right now, do you want Stacey Abrams elected? If you don't, put on the mask because she's going to use this issue against the governor. And the the little ninnies who want him to shut down the entire state, they're going to use this as a campaign issue. The governor should have shut us all down and forcibly rounded us up and thrown us in jail if we left our houses, and he didn't do that. And you know, in, in the suburbs, that's going to be a compelling message. So just wear the mask. Wearing the mask gives us a competitive advantage against other states. Wear the mask. The virus is spreading. Is it spreading from the protesters? You know, the media kept saying no, 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 and there wasn't actually a lot of data out there that the virus was spreading. But you know what? Guess what? There is 
there is data out there now that the protesters have been spreading the virus, just not as much as the kids who are going into restaurants and hanging out bars. That's really where it is. Doug Ducey, the governor of Arizona, has had to shut back down restaurants and bars. Why? Because the virus is spreading by people going to bars and restaurants. All you got to do is be responsible. And some of you can't be responsible. If you can't be responsible, people aren't going to trust you. And they're going to want to expand the power of the state. That's what you're seeing with the left right now. The left wants the government to step in and shut down every business and send you back home and arrest you if you come out of your house. Why? Because the left doesn't think you can be responsible. you got to prove them wrong. And the easiest way to prove them wrong is when you go into a crowd, wear a mask. You don't need to wear a mask if you're walking down the street by yourself. You don't need to wear a mask if you go to the gym. That's stupid. But if you go to a restaurant and you're waiting in the crowd for a table, wear a mask until you get your table. If you're going to the grocery store, wear a mask. If you're going to your office, wear a mask. If you're around a group of people and you're closely quartered, wear a mask. It's not hard. It's not hard. It actually will keep the virus from spreading. Now listen, one of the things that you are combating, one of the things I am combating, on a daily basis now I get emails from people showing me a bunch of fringe websites that have doctors who have MDs or PhDs who are saying, no, actually a mask won't stop a respiratory infection from spreading. Now I'm sorry. I can lead you to the truth, but I can't make you accept it. When you have one doctor out there telling you, Uh, that mass doesn't work and you've got 5,000 doctors out there telling you it will, you're going to believe the one guy, well, yes, because he's marching to the beat of his own drummer. Yeah, right off a cliff, right off a cliff. Sometimes there are real experts and they know what they're talking about. And right now the experts are saying, just put on the mask. Just do it. I don't want to be preachy and I don't want to browbeat you. But some of you are trying to make this, a, 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 a turn a molehill into a mountain. That is an infringement of your individual liberty. That that the virus that the the virus is not really spreading. I want to tell you something, and I mean this, and this is going to hurt your feelings. If you don't know anyone who's been impacted by this virus, you probably leave a sheltered, isolated life, and that's on you. That's not on everyone else. The fact that you and no one you love or know has been impacted by the virus allows you to believe it's a conspiracy because probably no one likes you or you like no one and you live by yourself in an isolated existence because I know dozens and dozens and dozens of people now, some of whom who have died. And most of the people I know who actually live a life of caring in the community where they're active and actually have friends know people who have been affected by the virus. The fact that you don't know anyone who's been affected by the virus probably speaks very poorly of you. And if that hurts your feelings, I'm sorry, but that actually speaks to you. The fact that we have a virus that has impacted millions of people, more than 100,000 Americans have died, and you still think it's no big deal and don't know anyone who's been impacted, that suggests no one likes you and you have no friends. And that's a damning indictment of you, not of anyone else. Put on the mask. Be responsible, stop the virus from spreading, and we can all go back to work and lead a happy existence and see the virus go away. But until then, stay home if you're not going to put on the mask. And yes, I realize the media has been hypocritical. They've covered it hypocritically and all of that. But come on, people. The whole world is being impacted by this virus. You know the only places that aren't anymore? The ones where everybody's wearing a mask. 
maybe we should be more like them. All right, I'm already getting the hate mail. I Listen, I, I stand by it. Uh, we've got uh, millions of people in this country who have had this virus. And if you don't know someone who's been impacted by this virus, then that actually suggests you don't have any friends. And I, I, I really, I don't mean to be a jerk about it, but that's that's just it. Um, I, I just, this is, this is a... Um, I know so many people now who have been affected by this virus. I know people who have died because of this virus. I know people who have been on a ventilator because of this virus. I know people who have had mild cases. I know people who have had cases who who only know because of the, the antibody test uh, and they had no symptoms at all. And, and you know what? There's actually a lot of data out there that um, there's actually a lot of data out there that the, the antibody tests are still wrong that people actually are testing positive when they shouldn't be. I just, y'all, it, it's, it's, this, this is a problem. And part of the issue here as well, we do need to acknowledge, and I want to acknowledge, is the media coverage of it has been so bad. The fear-mongering from the press, the double standard from the press and the protesters, it's all been bad. But that doesn't mean we should ignore reality just because the media screws up. The media screws up on a daily basis. Let's go to the phones. Robert in Fayetteville, you're going to be next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. You know, I think the conversation also needs to be opened up. It was mentioned, at, I think, at the first of this about how many people are really affected by COVID-19 who don't even really have it. I mean, just the mental stress of it all. We just we recently uh, buried a, a relative of ours that, he he was tested twice before going into the hospital for COVID nineteen. He went into the hospital for other issues, but it, it, he was he was under a lot of depression. Uh, he was lot, under a lot of stress, and we felt like that just because of this, um, you know, he felt very very isolated uh, and and away from his family. And we feel like that just the stresses and strains of this pandemic really kind of brought brought this to a head. And if it wasn't for COVID-19, we would probably still have the man here. You know, I, it, it, it's interesting you say that, Robert, um, because the, the number of people I know who, well, you know, addiction has become an issue, for example. I, I actually yes. know a, a person who is a friend of mine who has had to go get treatment because they are, they're in a risk category for the virus. And so they've stayed home and uh, drug and alcohol dependency. Uh, essentially consume them. They, they couldn't leave their house. They, they lived a lonely existence and they had the bottle to keep them company. And it, at least yes. they were sensible enough to go get help or, or the number of people who can't go like my wife, for example, who should have had her lung cancer screenings months ago and couldn't get to Emory. They wouldn't let her come in because of her situation. They finally did. And she's, she's the scans were good. Thank goodness. But uh, all of the, the ramifications and fallout of this. And it's just, if people would just wear a mask, um, yes. I, you know, my wife actually went to the doctor yesterday for a checkup and the doctor was telling her that the doctor has actually had patients laugh at the doctor for making everybody in the office wear masks, uh, which is just, just wow. when, when, when your doctor is telling you wear a mask and you're laughing, ridiculing the doctor that you're, you're overblowing it. I mean, the, there's, there's a problem with, with people, Robert, thank you for the call. And, and I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, but you're right that there are fallouts to this to people who don't get the virus. And then uh, get in situations, an isolated existence, and it, it becomes a problem for them, too. 
all you got to do is wear masks. Like so, you know, we're we're going to the beach for the Fourth of July. I got a note yesterday from the homeowner association uh, in uh, Hilton Head that Hilton Head has ordered that if you go in anywhere. Uh, you're going to have to wear a mask on even a restaurant. You'll have to wear a mask until you get seated at your table and have your food arrive. You'll have to wear a mask. If you're eating outdoors, you'll be fine. But inside, you got to have a mask. Why? Because of the huge spike. Local communities are taking action. Uh, your community probably should as well. I, I mentioned yesterday going to Fresh Market that uh, when I went to Fresh Market, there's a big sign at the front door. It used to be little like eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper taped. And now it's a big sign saying you must wear a mask when you come into this place. Wear a mask. I got to go to my office this afternoon. Normally, I do the show out of the house. Got to go to my office late this afternoon. I, I've, I've got to uh, go up there tonight, uh, and I got to wear a mask in the office. I got to wear a mask all the way from my office to the actual uh, studio where I broadcast my evening show. Got to wear a mask. They're making me. They shouldn't have to make me. Just be willing to do it. You you should be willing to do it. Uh, it, it, it's not an elaborate conspiracy. And th- think about the hubris of people who are ridiculing their doctor for wanting people in the doctor's office to wear masks. Um, that really speaks poorly of those people. In February, when COVID-19 was a distant concept to most Americans, gold was in the $1,500 range. The Dow was over 29000 Today, as the virus tears apart the economy, gold's over $1,700, and the Dow is around 24000 to 26000 Wobbling in between, major market disruptions favor gold, instability, uncertainty, impending inflation, they all favor gold. If you've not diversified some of your savings into gold, there's no better time than today. Protect your savings from further setbacks in the stock market. Gold, it's a safe haven. The company I trust with precious metal purchases is Birch Gold Group. And right now, thanks to a little-known IRS tax law, you can even move your IRA or your eligible 401k into an IRA backed by physical gold and silver. It's perfect for those who want to protect their hard-earned retirement savings from any more downturns in the stock market. Look back historically, when the bottom falls out of everything else, gold tends to be a safeguard savings. Contact Birch Gold Group to request a free info kit on physical precious metals. See if diversifying into gold and silver makes sense for you. The comprehensive 20-page kit reveals how gold and silver can protect your savings and how you can legally move your IRA or your 401k out of risky stocks and bonds into a precious metals IRA. To get your no-cost, no-obligation kit, go to birchgold.com slash Erickson. That's B-I-R-C-H gold.com slash Erickson, E-R-I-C-K. K-S-O-N. Hello, America. Man, you you list you just <laughs> y'all did not get to hear me belittling my audience in the last hour. At least some of them. I'm getting angry emails from people. <laughs> oh well, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. I well, I'm not really. I just, it, I just I'm aggravated. Uh, we, we see that it, hospitalizations in Georgia are going back up. The virus is going back up. People are starting to freak out. You, you've got the left is blasting Brian Kemp for not shutting the state down. Uh, and, and people just won't do what they need to do to keep the virus from spreading. It, it's actually, believe it or not, not terribly difficult to keep the virus from spreading. Stay away from crowds, wear a mask, and wash your hands. Ta-da! And yet people don't want to do those things. I want to move on to other stuff. I'm I'm really I'm tired of talking about the virus. Let me begin with the couple in St. Louis. You know the couple in St. Louis. My 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 buddy Brett 
just sent me this image uh, of the guy. You've probably seen the memes. This couple is a meme-generating genius machine. They, they, they should cash in. Um, it was <laughs> Suburban Commando. It's got the, the dude in his Brooks Brothers polo holding his AR. And it says, he just wanted to grill. Now he just wants to kill. <laughs> Here's all I want to say about that. I got nothing to say about it. Um, everybody expects a comment on all this sort of stuff. Here, look, y'all, seriously. Uh, this was a private gated community. The protesters who had been vandalizing property tore down the gates, uh, went through this private neighborhood, and uh, started making threats about burning down the houses. And the couple decided to uh, pull out their guns and stand on their front lawn to protect their home. I don't blame them. They spent, have you seen the pictures of this house? It is an uh, a, Italian palace, Italian palazzo. It's gorgeous on the inside. It is uh, 19th century gorgeous, which means by present standards, as an, as an aside, as an aside, I guess I should give the phone number too, shouldn't I? 877-973-7425. As an aside, what is it about rich people and ugly stuff? I just, I need to understand this because I've never understood this phenomenon. You know, one day I would like the show to be syndicated uh, so that I could buy my house at Lake Burton, uh, a, get a place at the beach and and buy some acreage. We got some acreage north of me that I'd love to buy. I don't have the money for it. And just build a house. And I just, I, 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 I got a house in my head. It, it's a big house. It's a big house. But it's not a gaudy house. I've had this house in my head for, for years. And I don't know. So I, I go online sometimes. And, and I look at the, the different places that are for sale or you go on the Sotheby's website where you can see all the places around the world. Why do rich people have the ugliest houses? What, what new rich people? Why do new rich people always build these god-awful ugly houses? Uh, it, it, I mean, it looks like Gucci puked in these houses. I don't understand it. You you got the gold and, and you've got the, I want to be, here's the one thing I don't want. I do not want a French style house. You know why I don't want a French style house? Because every new rich person decides they want a French style house and it looks so uncomfortable. It looks like you've got to have a corn cob up your butt to even sit on the couch. Why, why, why do people do this? I know people like this. I, I, I know people like this. Some, oh gosh. Couple of them are probably listening right now. They build these mansions because they want to flaunt their wealth, and in so doing, they it is the the gaudiest, hideous stuff uh, with, with their marble floors and their 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 candelabra and their chandeliers and their kitchen. These people are anorexic and they've got a kitchen that size. There's no way they actually use that kitchen. I mean, they don't eat. I mean, they've got their their wine cellar. Who the hell needs a wine cellar that big anyway? You're going through these places and you've got like a wine cellar that holds two, 3,000 bottles of wine. Are you an alcoholic? I don't understand the people who build these sorts of houses. They The houses you'll never resell. You just want to flaunt your wealth or something. It's just, it's absurd. If I build my house, I want a house that actually is comfortable to live in. I, I, if I build my house, I want a house that actually we we don't feel we wouldn't we would be thinking we could come into this house with muddy feet and everything would be okay. I don't want to live in a museum. And I go right now. These people in in um, in St. Louis, this house was built by one of the heirs of the Budweiser fortune. 
in this private, well-to-do street in a crime-ridden city. It is an Italian palazzo. It was built in the 1800s or the early 1900s, rather. It was built in the Gilded Age, and it is gorgeous, and it's antique, and it is lived in. And I'm thinking, you know, if, if, you, if you're royalty, you'd be right at home. If you were a Vanderbilt, you'd be right at home. If you're a wealthy traveler, you'll be right, right at home. So I, I, I've got a buddy of mine. I'm in a group. He's a doctor. And he has a lot of acreage and a very nice house that an architect built. And you could walk around that house and just be comfortable. It's got a gourmet kitchen, and it is comfortable. It is relaxed. Um, it, it's great for entertaining. You can tell the man has money, but it, it's not ostentatious. And then I know a guy who lives up in Buckhead, lives right off of West Pace's Ferry, lives in a house, and I swear to you this house looks like it's a museum that had Gucci and white trash. Gucci and, and, and Honey Boo Boo's mom together threw up in this house, and I do not understand. It's like the love child of, of I don't know, Gucci and, and Honey Boo Boo's mom. I, I It's just, it, it, it's horrific. I mean, the house could be like a, a it could be like a, a double wide with marble floors. I, I, I don't understand people who who they spend their money to show off their wealth. Like this is not where I intended to go. I've just I, I this has been building for a while as I've been looking at houses. I just don't understand why anyone would wanna would would want to would want to live in a house where you've got to be on tiptoes. I, I actually had a friend when I was in college, and. Everything in his parents' home was white. And when you went to the house, you had to take off your shoes to be able to walk in the house. And I'm thinking, why, 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 I would never want to live like this. I would never want to live like this. If I have a, if, if I make it big in radio and with, a, with monologues like this, I don't think I will, but nonetheless. <laughs> If I ever get a lot of money, I want to buy a lot of land, and I just want a nice size house. I I I want it to be. Uh, I guess we're not allowed to say plantation style anymore on the radio. I I I grew up in South Louisiana where you had all the old beautiful um, plantation style homes, neo classical Greco Roman British West Indies style house uh, with with you know what I want porches and balconies and a sleeping porch, but I wanted to be comfortable. I'm most concerned with the kitchen. It's it's got to be got to be double ovens. It's got to be a sixty inch range. You got to have induction and gas. You got to have the big sub zero refrigerators and freezers. I I got all this planned out in my head. I got a beautiful house built in my head. I'll probably never have the money to build it, but nonetheless, I don't want that gaudy gaudy gold leaf. Bleh. Okay, we can move on. That couple, however, they seem to like it. They spent millions of dollars renovating this Italian palazzo in St. Louis, and they intended to defend it. The wife, bad, bad, bad with her finger. She had it on the trigger every, uh, if you've gone through a gun class, don't ever put your finger on the trigger unless you're ready to pull it. And she had her finger on the trigger. She shouldn't have done that. The husband at one point had his AR pointed at his wife. Shouldn't have done it. But they were defending their property. They are not the bad guys here. The bad guys are the people who broke down the gates of the neighborhood and tried to storm it, chanting about burning stuff down. Did you hear at Jeff Bezos' house in Washington, D.C.? Someone put a guillotine on the sidewalk outside Jeff Bezos' house. What we're seeing here is that none of this is about the Civil War. None of this is about uh, slavery. None of this at this point is about any of that. This is about nursing grievances about America itself. 
These people are anti-American. That's what all of this is about. These people are out to upend the United States of America because of their pinup grievances about their perceived injustice in this country. And ironically, many of these people have never actually lived anywhere else. Uh, these people are out there protesting the very idea of America, an idea and an ideal that we continually strive to live up to. We are never perfect and always in quest for perfection. And right now they have demanded a societal upheaval. Here's Mark Thiessen talking on Fox News about this. This is what they did to George Washington. This is red paint, two statues of Washington. The one on the left is shown with him and his, uh, his role as a general. And the other one is a statesman and politician and president uh, shown on the right. Now, this is what you're getting in a lot of American cities, Mark. No doubt. Look, this is the problem with the American left is they always go too far. Instead of pushing for police reform, which is something that a majority of Americans support, including Republicans on Capitol Hill, whose bill was short-circuited by, by Democrats, uh, they go for defund the police, which is a minoritarian view. And instead of starting a national conversation on Confederate memorials, which I think a lot of people would, be, would support uh, revisiting and removing, uh, they go after George Washington. They go after Abraham Lincoln. They go after Ulysses S. Grant, left-wing mobs tearing down and defacing uh, these these uh, statues and the what what it shows is they're not against the Confederacy they're against the Union <laughs> they're against America uh, they think that America is irredeemably racist because of our because we had slavery at our founding if all if institutions that were founded uh, on uh, during slavery and in defense of slavery were are irredeemably racist then that let's start with the with canceling the Democratic Party which was founded to uh, to uh, to get rid uh, to defend slavery, which was founded to oppose the civil rights movement and defend uh, segregation. If the Democratic Party, if if your roots in in the in the history are make you uh, irredeemably racist, then the Democratic Party needs to go. You know, maybe they should take on the history of the Democratic Party. He's not wrong. Uh, you know, the left did this revisionism in the 1960s 1970s that that all the all those racists became republicans and, and and that's that's what it's all about that's not really true it was the democrats who were filibustering the civil rights act it was the republicans who who were helping pass it it, it was the republicans who were helping advance civil rights that's not to say that the Republican Party is, is pure as the driven snow. No, the Republican Party itself does have problems. But it is interesting to watch the revisionism uh, of the American left when it comes to dealing with the history of the Democratic Party. And they can't be honest about it. And they got to say, oh, well, all these people would be Republicans, except they have a problem, George Wallace. You know, you've actually had uh, people on the left claim that George Wallace uh, became a Republican. He did not. Uh, George Wallace did not become a Republican. Uh, George Wallace uh, left the Democratic Party uh, ever so slightly and then went back to the Democratic Party and in so doing, stayed a Democrat, opposed Ronald Reagan. And the left wants to ignore all of that. They want to rewrite American history. Uh, maybe, maybe the Democratic Party needs to pay a little more attention to itself. You know, it just, just, just two words for you. When it comes to Democrats and race in this country, Beto O'Rourke, Beto O'Rourke, 
In 2018, Beto O'Rourke, a white dude who had beaten a Hispanic man uh, to become a congressman, had beaten a, a Hispanic Democrat to become a congressman, challenged Ted Cruz, and the national media went gaga for him, talking about his Kennedy good looks and the like. And he was challenging a Hispanic uh, whose family, whose father had immigrated to this country, and he lost. And you know who got closer? Uh, what, what's his name? Um, 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 gay meth dude in, in Florida, uh, who ran for, for governor there and Stacey Abrams here in Georgia. Stacey Abrams got closer to Brian Kemp than Beto O'Rourke got to Ted Cruz in Texas. Now, Abrams would not have run a one-off or run a one-off, won a runoff, uh, but, but she got close. And, and the progressives in the media who paid attention to the Kennedy-esque good looks of Beto O'Rourke against the Hispanic totally ignored the black woman who had a better chance. And ever since, they've been uh, succumbed by – overcome by white guilt and have had to push every narrative Stacey Abrams has wanted to make amends. Uh, maybe the media needs to assess its own racism in its covering of the Democratic Party before it lectures the rest of us, and that could go for the Democrats as a whole as well. Uh, the Democrats uh, propped up Beto O'Rourke on a pedestal – after having beat a Hispanic Democrat and then tried to run against a Hispanic man uh, for the advancement of a white dude in Texas because that Hispanic guy had wrong think. And that's what you see time and again, whether it comes to the treatment of Bobby Jindal or Nikki Haley or Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or the like. Democrats are perfectly fine with racism as long as it's racism directed at Republicans. Uh, maybe they need to account for the problems within their own party before they start lecturing us nationally. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425, 877-973-7425. Carl Reiner has died. Um, I, he was a, he, he, when I was a kid, you watch reruns of the Dick Van Dyke show. And he's been on, on stuff recently. Um, what is he? And it wasn't he Rob Reiner's dad, um, Car and Rob Reiner is the obnoxious one. Um, he, but he was a famous comedian. Um, now I'm trying to, oh, he helped create the Dick Van Dyke show. Um, let's see what, what is, what is his, uh, latest ones? Um, let's see. He was in, um, eh, the jerk. That's where he was most famous. Um, he was in TV. He, man, he was in a lot of TV show, uh, uh, justice league. He played a voice family guy. He was a voice in family guy, uh, parks and recreation, a voice in, in the Cleveland show and American dad, uh, a voice in air. Uh, he was in two and a half men for a number of episodes, Boston legal, uh, Allie McBeal. Yeah. I, I mean, the man just, he was a legend, uh, helped write the Dick Van Dyke show. Um, a number of others. Hey, by the way, reminding me, um, you know, <clears throat> the Simpsons now, they're only going to have yellow people, um, in playing characters. You, you got to dye your skin yellow. So, so <laughs> this is, this is where, uh, the, the, this stuff goes off the rails folks. So they're upset that, uh, you've had potentially white people playing, uh, doing the voices of non-white characters. And so they have to get rid of the non-white, or they have to get rid of the white people doing the voices for non-white people. Now, here's the thing. This is, this is where it breaks down. 
do you think the people who are complaining will be would insist that if you had an uh, an Asian character, let's say you had a Korean character, would they be upset if a Japanese or Chinese person did the voice of the Korean character? The odds are, given that it's it's a bunch of uh, millennial white people who are protesting, no, they won't care because it's Asian Asian. Never mind the the historic divide between those countries. Never never mind that. Um, it, it just it, it it's striking to me to see the number of people out there who get so worked up about the stuff and they don't actually think it through. Uh, you're watching a cartoon. You're watching a cartoon, and, and let's say, I, I don't know, I, I don't know who the voice of Apu is, uh, the, the Indian uh, store owner. I, I, I don't care that the person is, is I don't care what the race is. I don't know. I, I'm, I, it, it's, it's the cartoon character. Homer Simpson is yellow. Bart Simpson is, is yellow. Uh, I I don't understand the the desire to do this. It, like for example, uh, Warner Brothers. If you get HBO Max now, they're they're getting rid of the Elmer Fudd's gun. It's gonna be hard for him to hunt a wabbit, kill a wabbit when when, when he he doesn't have a gun. He's got a tickle device or something. I I don't know what it is. Uh, political correctness, it, it run amok. Uh, it, it is it, it's you're being you're being sensitive to people's feelings. To make yourself feel good. It's like, y'all, I am tired of white people telling me how to appreciate black lives. I, I have had enough of well-to-do, well-meaning liberal white people telling me what I must do to be anti-racist. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, of all people, on the floor of the Senate, urging people to... Uh, Tens of thousands of Americans protesting the appalling killings of black men and women are calling upon us, on all of us, not just to say the words Black Lives Matter, but to take a tangible step toward making it true by breaking apart the systems that have stolen countless black lives and denied black Americans opportunity and equal treatment. Being race conscious is not enough. It never was. We must be anti-racists. Do you really want Elizabeth Warren, who manufactured her genetic test to prove she was American Indian, do you want that being the person as your face of let's be anti-racist, really? I am so tired of white people telling me what books I need to read and movies I need to watch and restaurants I need to patronize to support black culture. Why don't we listen to some black voices as well? There are plenty of good ones out there to listen to as opposed to all these white people. I, I, I'm gonna, When I, we come back, I want to tell you exactly what's going to happen with this movement that's going on in the country right now. I know what's going to happen to it. I, I'm afraid I lost a listener and a reader. Uh, he, he's, he sent me, I'm just going to read you the email that I just got. Hey, Eric, I've considered this on a number of occasions, but today was the last straw. Sadly, I now see you're part of the problem. You are the media. All the news was about the riots and the virus went away. Now the riots have subsided. It's the virus again. And now you even say we should wear masks. Sorry, Eric. I can no longer support you. Um, 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 okay, 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 uh, there we go, okay, um, wow, okay, uh, the, uh, he, he can't support me because of, I just said that you should wear a mask, 
I guess he's not going to vote for Vice President Pence, who said it yesterday, or for uh, Governor Kemp in Georgia, who also says it, or uh, Governor Ducey of Arizona, or Governor Abbott of Texas, or Governor DeSantis of Florida, or, or Governor uh, Ivey of Alabama, uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney, the, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and, and the like, all of whom have said to wear masks. I guess. Okay. Uh, there is a, there's a big, a big, a big, a big, a big Supreme court case, big Supreme court case. Uh, it is the Espinoza case. Uh, it is about, uh, Catholic charities and Catholic schools. And it is a huge, huge win for religious liberty authored by, uh, justice Alito and uh, Roberts uh, also uh, writes a 5-4 majority. Uh, wow, it's too long. Uh, didn't read. A state need not subsidize private education, but once a state decides to do so, it cannot disqualify some private schools solely because they are religious. So essentially, in this case, uh, the Democrats in Philadelphia, I believe this is the, that case, uh, there's... There are a couple of them. Uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. No, this is the Montana one. This is the Montana case. This is the big one. Uh, Montana uh, has decided that it wanted to exclude religious schools from participating in a tax credit scholarship voucher-like program. Uh, this was the Blaine Amendment. Uh, essentially, the Blaine Amendment is dead. You need to understand the Blaine Amendment. The Blaine Amendment, I believe he beca- uh, became a Speaker of the House. I think he was a, from Massachusetts or no, Senator Blaine. In, in, yeah, anyway. So Senator Blaine, back in the late 1800s with the rise of, or early 1900s with the rise of Catholic, uh, Irish Catholic immigrants to the United States, went on an anti-Catholic campaign and began, because Catholics were starting schools, uh, began a, a campaign of constitutional amendments around the country to prevent state money from flowing to religious institutions. Montana is one of the states that had a Blaine Amendment. And Montana used a tax credit scholarship and in its tax credit scholarships prohibited uh, Christian schools from taking advantage of the tax credit scholarship. Now, essentially what uh, Montana did is said that uh, if you go to a private school in Montana, you too can get money from this tax credit scholarship. This is very much like in Georgia. We have an opportunity scholarship fund where um, you can you, you take money. We've already got an existing one. This is not the, the lottery issue. We've got a fund in Georgia where if you put a, contribute a dollar towards one of these educational scholarships, you can subtract a dollar from what you pay the state in income tax. It's a dollar for dollar match. So you, you spend a dollar. To help send a poor kid to a private school through one of these funds, you can subtract a dollar from what you owe in taxes as a credit to your tax bill. And in Montana, they have a very similar thing, but religious schools were prohibited from participating in the program. And so a family sued. And John Roberts, writing for the court, says that if the state decides to subsidize private schools through one of these charities then you cannot discriminate uh, among religious and secular private schools. That if you do this, then you can't say, well, everybody's allowed, but religious institutions are not allowed. Uh, And man, um, this is John Roberts writing the decision. Uh, And and let's see. 
For innovation, one must look to the dissents. Their roomy or flexible approaches to discrimination against religious organizations and observers would mark a significant departure from our free exercise precedents. The protections of the free exercise clause do not depend on judgment-by-judgment analysis regarding whether discrimination against religious adherents would somehow serve ill-defined purposes. Because the Montana Supreme Court applied the no-aid provision to discriminate against schools and parents based on the religious character of the schools, the strictest scrutiny is required. That stringent standard is not watered down, but really means what it says. To satisfy it, government action must advance interests of the highest order and must be narrowly tailored in pursuit of those interests. The Montana Supreme Court asserted that the no-aid provision served Montana's interest in separating church and state more fiercely than the federal constitution. But that interest cannot qualify as compelling in the face of the infringement of free exercise. A state's interest in achieving greater separation of church and state than is already insured under the establishment clause is limited by the free exercise clause. The department, for its part, asserts that the no-aid provision, the Department of Education of Montana, asserts that the no-aid provision actually promotes religious freedom. In the Department of Education's view from Montana, the no-aid provision protects religious liberty of taxpayers by ensuring that their taxes are not directed to religious organizations, and it safeguards the freedom of religious organizations by keeping the government out of their operations. An infringement of First Amendment rights, however, cannot be justified by a state's alternative view that the infringement advances religious liberty. Our federal system prizes state experimentation, but not state experimentation in the suppression of free speech, and the same goes for the free exercise of religion. Furthermore, we do not see how the no-aid provision promotes religious freedom. As noted, this court has repeatedly upheld government programs that spend taxpayer funds on equal aid to religious observers and organizations, particularly when the link between government and religion is attenuated by private choices. A school concerned about government involvement with its religious activities might reasonably decide for itself not to participate in a government program, but we doubt that the school's liberty is enhanced by eliminating any option to participate in the first place. The Montana Department of Education's argument is especially unconvincing because the infringement of religious liberty here broadly affects both religious schools and adherents. Montana's no-aid provision imposes a categorical ban. This prohibition is far more sweeping than the policy in the Supreme Court case of Trinity Lutheran, which barred churches from one narrow program for playground surfaces, causing in all likelihood only a few extra scraped knees. At the prohibition before us today burdens, and the prohibition before us today burdens not only religious schools, but also the families whose children attend or hope to attend them. Drawing on enduring American tradition, we have long recognized the rights of parents to direct the religious upbringing of their children. Many parents exercise that right by sending their children to religious schools, a choice protected by the Constitution. But the no-aid provision penalizes that decision by cutting families off from otherwise available benefits if they choose a religious private school rather than a secular one and for no other reason other than the religious nature of the school. The Department of Education of Montana suggests that the no-aid provision advances Montana's interest in public education. According to that department, the no-aid provision safeguards the public school system by ensuring the government support is not diverted to private schools. But under that framing, the no-aid provision is factually under-inclusive because it proffers objectives are not pursued with respect to 
analogous non-religious conduct. On the department's view, an interest in public education is undermined by diverting government support to any private school, yet the no-aid provision bars aid only to religious schools. A law does not advance an interest of the highest order when it leaves appreciable damage to that supposedly vital interest unprotected. Montana's interest in public education cannot justify a no-aid provision that requires only religious private schools to bear its weight. A state need not subsidize private education, but once the state decides to subsidize private education, it cannot disqualify some private schools solely because they are religious. That is John Roberts, the liberal, writing for the Supreme Court today, a five to four decision. Uh, Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, right, concurring opinions here. This is a actually a very big case today in the Supreme Court uh, at Roberts's hand. And essentially, here's the fact pattern. Montana has a, as I mentioned earlier, Montana has a uh, scholarship program where a parent can send their child to a school of their choice and the state will subsidize the cost if it is a private school. But Montana says because of the separation of church and state, uh, not a penny of this scholarship can go to a religious school. And the uh, five members of the court, Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, have said that that provision is unconstitutional, that, again, according to John Roberts, the moment the state decides to allow money to flow to private schools, it cannot differentiate between uh, secular and sectarian private schools. That's a huge win for conservatives. That is a huge win. Um I, I find that I, I just, that's, that's, that's good. And again, it, it goes to show, this goes back to my original opening, and I, and I suspect we're probably going to see the Catholic Charities case uh, come down, um, come down the same way. The Supreme Court today essentially uh, ruling unconstitutional, uh, the constitutional amendments of multiple Supreme Court cases, or I'm sorry, multiple uh, state constitutions. The Blaine amendments are in something like 30 states, including Georgia, have a Blaine amendment. And the Supreme Court largely today ruling that the Blaine amendment is unconstitutional. Uh, Justice Alito, Alito in his concurrence has a, a long history of the Blaine amendment and how it was predicated on anti-Catholic sentiment in the country in the early 19, late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, it's this is this is a this is a very good day for people in this country, and it suggests to me. It suggests to me that on the Catholic Charities case, they will also uh, probably protect Catholic Charities. Well, I don't know. Maybe Roberts will split the baby on that one as well, but but I don't think so. So the Catholic Charities case that's coming up is Philadelphia banned Catholic Charities from participating in adoption services in Philadelphia because Catholic Charities will only allow uh, heterosexual married couples to adopt through Catholic Charities. Now, the left's argument is that this discriminates, and the right's argument is that there are a plenty, uh, a plenty of other charities by which people can go through adoption agencies, by which homosexual couples or single people can go through to adopt children. Uh, but you should allow these charities to be able to participate as best they can without upending their faith and religion. And we will see where Roberts comes down on that one. This one today, however, is really, really good. Uh, and it is really, really clear to me that uh, the court is elevating religious liberty beyond where it 
had been uh, with Supreme Court jurisprudence. You, you got to remember that one of the reasons that RIFRA was passed, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed by Congress, is because of a Scalia decision, and I think Scalia got this wrong. Scalia essentially said that every part of the First Amendment needs strict, strict scrutiny. Strict scrutiny is a standard uh, by which uh, you've got to, uh, if a law discriminates against one of your First Amendment rights, the government has to have a, a an absolute substantive necessary interest, and basically no government interests can abridge the First Amendment. But there was a carve-out in Scalia's case for religious freedom the government didn't have to have strict scrutiny. And the Religious Freedom Restoration Act said, no, no, with RIFRA, you've got to have strict scrutiny for that as well. And this case today essentially says that strict scrutiny will also apply not just to freedom of speech, but will also apply to um, to religious liberty. And that I think is good, and that is a pretty profound uh, enhancement of religious liberty rights in this country. If, if my interpretation holds, and I think it will, based on what I read to you guys, uh, he's pretty explicit, Roberts is, that strict scrutiny applies not just to free speech, but also to uh, the free exercise of religion. Now, before we go, speaking of our constitutional rights, we need to talk about a Second Amendment right because we got a great advertiser, True Precision. True-Precision.com is their website. True Precision makes parts for guns. They don't actually manufacture guns, but they turn your regular gun into an awesome gun. Uh, slides, barrels, grips. I've got a gun from True Precision. That's why I'm so delighted that they're now a sponsor of the program because it is my favorite gun. I got a 40 uh, Glock 43X. They actually got the gun uh, and they upgraded it for me and they sent it to me with, with sights, grip, everything. I love it. Uh, it is my go-to for concealed carry. It is a great gun. It is also a work of art. And that's what separates True Precision from other places where you can go if you want a new barrel or a slide. Their work, it is a work of art. And if you live in Georgia, they're here in Georgia. You're supporting a local Georgia business. Uh, they are brilliant gunsmiths. I cannot recommend them enough. And I say this as a customer of theirs, a customer well before the ad campaign. I was a customer of True Precision. And you should be too. If you got a Glock, you got a SIG, a number of other gun manufacturers, they can upgrade your gun with a barrel, a slide, grips, you name it. Uh, you could even get like the barrel and slide. You can just order it online, do it yourself. Uh, what you do is you go to uh, true-precision.com, true-precision.com. Uh, find what you want and order it. If you use Eric, E-R-I-C-K at checkout, you can get a 10% discount on your order. Uh, True-Precision.com. Your checkout code is my first name, Eric, E-R-I-C-K, and you will get a great deal on your gun parts. Go check them out, True-Precision.com, and thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Hello there. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-973-7425, 877-973-7425. And I need to tell you all something. We, I, I, I've... I dance around this because I, I don't want to I don't want to cause heartburn for our local affiliates. We are a a radio show that is on actual radio stations, uh, but uh, we have had a bunch of people ask where they can hear the show online, and we've got some great affiliates who have great live streams. Uh, but we also now have a live stream of the show at theresurgent.com. If you go to theresurgent.com, uh, because you're out of town, you're out of state, and you don't have a fine affiliate to listen to, uh, you can listen to it uh, streaming online at theresurgent.com. 
uh, every day, five days a week, so not every day, but five days a week, nine to noon. You can hear me live uh, by going to theresurgent.com. Uh, we do try to stream it as live as we can on Facebook. We've had fairly stable connections this week on Facebook, which is good. Uh, we'll see if that lasts. Uh, I think people are going on vacation, so uh, the internet hopefully is fixed. Uh, we've had, man, we've had some really bad internet around here. I, I, I got to play this exchange for you. This is uh, Ryan Lizza talking to Kaylee McEnany at the White House. Listen to his question. Tell me the press is not at war with the White House. And, uh, the president has repeatedly inserted himself into this debate. And I think a lot of people are trying to understand what his view of uh, memorializing the Confederacy is in the proper place of the Confederate flag. So a couple questions. One, does he believe, does President Trump believe that it was a good thing that the South lost the Civil War? And then two, is he interested in following NASCAR's example and banning the Confederate flag at his own events? Well, your first question is absolutely absurd. He's proud of the United States of America. Um, second, with regard to our statues, um, Americans oppose tearing down our statues. There's a Harvard-Harris poll released just last week that shows 60% of respondents said the statues should remain, and 71% said local governments should block groups from physically destroying the statues. So he stands on the side of preserving our history. The question is actually about the Confederate flag at his rallies. Will he, is he interested in banning the Confederate flag at his rallies? That would be a question for his campaign, but look, this president's focused on taking action, on fixing problems. It's why he had his executive order just a few weeks ago to keep our streets safe and secure. That's where his focus lies, and um, I think that those who are tearing down statues, they do appear to have no ideology when they're tearing down statues uh, and defacing statues of Matthias Baldwin, an abolitionist, um, Hans Christian Hegg, who died fighting for the Union Army during the Civil War, uh, a memorial for African-American soldiers who fought in the Civil War was damaged in Boston, and a monument to fallen police officers was vandalized in Sacramento. This is unacceptable. It's why the president took strong action. He wants to ask a question about the president's support of the Confederate. First of all, who's bringing the Confederate flag to the president's rallies? Uh, I thought they only flew Trump flags at the president's rallies. Um, but nonetheless, uh, why raise the issue with the White House and, and try to make a stink about it? Because they're out to, they're convinced the president's a racist. Uh, the president retweeting the white power thing the other day really didn't help. But still, uh, this is a this is a this is a big deal. Uh, that the the essentially you've got intelligence agents and the press uh, collaborating with intelligence operatives, careerists who hate the president, leaking to the press to try to bring down this presidency in the run up to the election. And the Russia story is part of it. When we come back, we do need to engage the Russia story ever so slightly. Hello there. Uh, wow. Breaking news. The FBI has uh, arrested members of the Toledo, Ohio City Council. Uh, they're going to have a press conference to uh, to, to, to talk about it. I'm, I have no idea. That's that's all I know is they have arrested members of the Toledo, Ohio City Council. You know, they're investigating uh, City Hall in Atlanta still. The feds keep going in and out of there. Uh, it's going to be interesting to to see what they come up with there. I, 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 I need to circle back to some Georgia news. I want to talk about the Russia stuff finally, but I need to talk about Georgia stuff first. Uh, in Georgia, Governor Kemp is about to hit the road and go around the state 
to urge people to wear masks. Um, and uh, they the, the governor wants people to, uh, he wants people to wear masks. He's not going to mandate. He doesn't think he has the authority to mandate people wear masks. Uh, it's arguable whether or not he does. And, and let me, like, I, I want to deviate uh, from, uh, I, I, I want to deviate a little bit from where I was going to go to talk about this uh, from a constitutional perspective. Uh, the police power of each state is very broad. You know, the federal government doesn't really have a police power. It's why there's no real police force. The Federal Bureau of Investigation is just that, a, a federal bureau of investigation. They have some level of police power to enforce federal law. But overwhelmingly, the, the police power is a power at the state level. It is a power exercised by states. Uh, if you will recall from your history, we originally we had what was called the Articles of Confederation, where the the independent nations of Georgia, the Carolinas, Virginia, New York, the rest of them, uh, these these independent nations got together and formed a confederation where they would would uh, allow a confederation, a government of the confederation to do certain things for them, but they had to have unanimous agreement between those nations. And oftentimes the representatives from those nations meeting together as a Congress would have to go back to their, their countries and get permission for the confederated government to do things. And it just wasn't working. It was, it was complex. It was convoluted. Uh, the, the entire American experiment, having won independence from Britain, was going to collapse if they continued on with this confederation. So what they decided to do was to sit down and improve the Articles of Confederation, and they did so uh, ultimately by scrapping them all together and forming a constitution. And what the Constitutional Convention decided, they made a number of compromises along the way, because you got to remember, these were 13, they were no longer colonies. These were 13 independent nations. Delaware was a country. Georgia was a country. Georgia had a state religion. Georgia was a country. South Carolina, North Carolina, countries. Georgia, frankly, uh, was a massive country. Georgia owned all the property from Georgia all the way to the Mississippi River. Georgia was a massive, massive country. And they needed to figure out a way to come together in a united form. And so they formed the United States of America. And until the Civil War, they were referred to as these United States not the United States. The United States became common after the Civil War when it was very apparent uh, that these were, were states within a common country as opposed to individual countries that had ceded certain power uh, to a, a greater good. But the reason the Constitution was formed was because the states needed to cede certain powers to Washington, D.C. or to a federal government to be able to make, uh, to be able to make common decisions that governed all of them uh, with limits. Uh, and the powers that they ceded essentially allowed them to form the basis of a country, but retaining most elements of sovereignty. So for example, Article 1, Section 8, these are the powers that the 13 original countries 
decided when they decided to form the United States and become states of a greater country, decided to see the, the Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, import, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. This was one of the problems of the Articles of Confederation. The federal government, did it wasn't really a government. It didn't have the power to take on debt or to pay bills. It had to beg for money. It couldn't borrow money. So that was number one. That what they need to do. Number two, to borrow money on the credit of the United States as opposed to the individual countries. To regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. To establish a uniform rule of naturalization and uniform rules on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States. To coin money, regulate the value thereof in a foreign coin and fix the standards and weights and measures. To provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States. To establish post offices and roads. To promote the promotion of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right of their respective writings and discoveries. To constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court. To define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations. To declare war, grant letters of marquee and reprisal, and make rules concerning capture on land and water. To raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to you to that use shall be for a longer term than two years. To provide and maintain a navy. To make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. To provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. To provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia and for governing such parts of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states respectively the appointment of officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. To exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district not to exceed 10 square miles as may by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress become the seat of the government of the United States and to exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the state in which the same shall be for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings and to make all laws which are necessary and proper to carry into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by the Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. All of these were necessary so that internally the states could be nations. But externally, facing the rest of the world, they needed one common voice. They needed George Washington and they needed a Congress. Internally, though, notice that, that the powers, what are the powers? The powers are for defense of the all of the, the, the states, regulation of trade between the states to ensure fair play between the states, to ensure the promotion of arts and sciences nationwide with a common set of rules, to establish the mail as a nation. Every nation had a post office, so the United States needed a post office. And, and to deal with other nations, but internally, the states are semi-sovereign. They are nations within certain bounds of the Constitution. They gave up those powers. So the state of Georgia gave up the power to print its own money. The state of Georgia gave up the power to negotiate trade agreements with surrounding states like South Carolina or Alabama. The state of Georgia gave up the power to have a navy. The state of Georgia 
gave up the power to punish piracy. The state of Georgia gave up the power to regulate money. The state of Georgia gave up those powers, but no other powers. So the state of Georgia did not give up the power of the police to the federal government. That, that's not listed in the powers of the federal government in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. The police power stays with the state of Georgia. The power to educate your children stays with the state of Georgia. In fact, to the extent that Congress and the federal government exercise any role in educating your kids is through the purse, purse strings. The Congress gives money to the states and then tells the states how they must use that money. Uh, I have long advocated an amendment to the Constitution that would read very simply, the Congress of the United States may not withhold or give money to any state with demands that the state behave or not behave, pass laws or fail to pass laws, or otherwise regulate the legislation or regulation of the states through the giving or withholding of federal dollars. So you either give the money to the states or you don't, but you don't give the money with purse strings. But right now, Congress can do that. Congress, with its purse strings, through the power of appropriation, can control uh, law enforcement and control education states to an extent. But there are even limits there, and those limits come with the purse strings. So, for example, the federal government cannot uh, make a local police force enforce federal law. That's unconstitutional. The federal government has no police power within with limited extent. The state, the federal government cannot compel a local sheriff to enforce a federal government law. Why? Because the police power is with the state. The federal government cannot actually tell states how to educate your kids. They give a lot of money so that states go along with it, but they can't really impose it. The, the, the federal government can't tell states, can't dictate the curriculum of states. Why? Because the federal government under Article 1, Section 8, there is nothing in there that talks about education. So the state has really broad powers. They are restrained only by the Bill of Rights in what they can do. The Bill of Rights, with the enactment of the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court has slowly over time in the 20th century ruled the Bill of Rights applies to the states, and so there are limits there. The states prior to the enactment of the 14th Amendment, really prior to the 20th century, states had state religions. In Georgia, uh, the Baptist Church was the state religion in Georgia. The Baptists were funded by the state of Georgia. Uh, other states, for example, Maryland uh, was a Catholic state. Maryland had very close ties to the federal or to the the state government and the Catholic Church, and that too has changed. And slowly over time, states have pretended that they don't have the power they have. But when it comes to mask wearing, that is a public health power of the police power of the state. And so it's actually the, the federal government actually has very little power. You will recall that when the president was thinking of imposing draconian measures, you had a bunch of commentators on the news say, well, the president can't do this. Only the governors can do this. And now suddenly they want the president to do the very things that the Republican governors are doing, claiming that suddenly the president, miracle of miracles, has the power. Three months ago, they said the president didn't have. The president doesn't have the power. Now, the Democrats are out there saying, yes, the president can demand that people wear masks. I don't see how the president has that power. I'm sure that the Supreme Court can find a way for the president to do it, but it actually is a police power of the state. Your governor can make you wear masks. Now, in Georgia, 
your governor is not making you wear a mask. In Texas, your governor is not making you wear a mask. In Arizona and Florida, the governor's not making you wear a mask, uh, but they are urging people to wear masks. And they're urging people to wear masks because masks, if everyone wears them, actually does reduce the transmission rate of the virus. Now, how does it reduce the transmission rate of the virus? Well, in the same way that you cover your mouth with your hand when you cough, a a barrier, a mask, serves as a barrier for the expelment of the particles. Not all of them get trapped. Many of them pass through your mask, but not nearly as many as otherwise would have if you just cough with your mouth open. Or you you cover your mouth with your hand, it gets on your hand, and then you're not thinking, and you pick up an apple at the grocery store, and suddenly the virus is on the apple, and someone else picks it up and transmits it that way. And then when people inhale, you're wearing a mask, they're wearing a mask, you've reduced the amount of particles expelled through your cough or your sneeze by wearing a mask, the other person reduces their intake, and slowly but surely, the virus goes away. The governor of Georgia doesn't want to use the police power of the state to make you wear the mask, but he's going to go on a whirlwind trip of the of the state to try to urge people to wear masks when they're in gatherings, when they're in public, when they're in crowds, when they're in grocery stores. Uh, it's probably something people need to do. I, I have gotten angry emails from people this morning uh, demanding that I stop telling you to wear a mask. I, I lost a subscriber. I, I have a, a daily email that I send out as a paid subscription. It goes in-depth with the news podcast interviews, other things. And I had someone email me this morning saying they're canceling the subscription because I'm telling people to wear a mask and that I'm part of the problem if I'm telling people the fake news uh, to wear a mask. If I am, then Vice President Cheney, Vice President Pence, Governor Kemp, Governor Ivey, Governor DeSantis, Governor Ducey, Governor Abbott, uh, Mitch McConnell, all of these people are also part of the problem because they're all unified in their message that uh, you should wear a mask It will help slow the spread of the virus. And if you think we're all part of the problem and that only you are a truth teller here, maybe the problem actually isn't all these people telling you to wear a mask. Maybe the problem actually is you. I'm I'm actually on Instagram right now. (laughs) I'm so irresponsible. What a radio show host. (laughs) I'm just making sure. So this happens um, more and more with... um, uh, a listener just sent me his proof of purchase for his Rectech uh, grill, and I, I've got a Rectech. I love my Rectech. It is a, a pellet uh, grill, and I, I, I've become a huge fan. Uh, I really, really have become a huge fan of Rectech, uh, and I, I smoke uh, way more than I used to. Now, I've got a big green egg, and, and I, I do love – I don't want you to hear me – disparaging my big green egg. I've had my big green egg for more than a decade and I love my big green egg. The problem with my big green egg is, is twofold. One, uh, every time I smoke chicken on my egg, uh, it, 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 it tends to be too smoky if I smoke it too low and, uh, gets too, uh, too dried out if I go too high to avoid the smoke. Uh, and the rec tech, I think does a better job with, with poultry, Uh, at least in my experience. Uh, But the main reason that I really love my Rectech and have stopped using my Big Green Egg, in fact, I'm thinking of putting it up for sale. Like a a buddy of mine tells me I should put it on Facebook or something, Facebook Marketplace, because I've got like the the electronic controller and everything. It's a large Big Green Egg. I got the table. I got all the stuff for it. And I do love it. 
Um, but I just, I've got a large one and I started thinking if I'm going to pay the money to get the extra large for like briskets, cause I got to fold the brisket over on itself. If I use it in, uh, on my, on, on my big green egg, uh, I got to fold it over on itself. And that just kind of frustrates me. I don't want to have to do that. And so by doing it this way, I, um, by doing the rec tech, I, I'm able to do stuff like a giant brisket without having to fold it over. I can do multiple Boston butts and stuff like that. And, and I personally find that much more enjoyable, uh, than, and I don't have to stay up all night and get up to temperature. You know, with the rec tech, it's computer controlled and it's pellet. So I just say, Hey, I want you to be 250 degrees and it takes it maybe 15 minutes and it gets there with my big green egg. It takes hour to get up to temperature, and then you throw on the meat and stuff, and then you got to make sure that the temperature regulated, and then you connect the fan and stuff, and you're good all night. Um, I have great results with my Big Green Egg. I love my Big Green Egg. But at this point, I've mastered the Big Green Egg. I don't use my Big Green Egg for grilling, and I don't use the Rectech for grilling. The, the Rectech gets hotter than a Traeger. It can get over 500 degrees with the Rectech, uh, but it still doesn't get as hot as I would like for a grill. So I've got a it's, – it's called a DCS. I don't recommend you get them. Uh, I actually I, – well, I'm not going to tell you how, how – it, it's expensive. Let me just put it to you that way. I did not sell a child or a kidney, but it was super expensive and uh, hence uh, access to some money that I used and I bought it and I love it. And I've had this grill for a long time. The thing, if you, if you, okay, I'm talking now to those of you on the high earning end of the spectrum. Uh, and I don't mean that to be off putting. It's just the reality. These are professional chef grills. And the thing that sets the DCS grill apart from all the others is, you know, a lot of grills have a sear burner that is a ceramic burner and it gets really freaking hot to sear a steak. The Rectech doesn't have a sear burner. They've got one model that does, but the genius of the Rectech, not the Rectech, the DCS, the DCS has these hollow ceramic tubes and they sit right over the fire. And those ceramic tubes get really, really really hot so hot to the extent that if you leave the grill on sear and you stick your hands in the hair on your hands will burn off that's how hot it gets just like with a big green egg and you can sear a steak anywhere on the grill so if you've got a if you're cooking for a crowd you can turn on uh, the entire 36 inch width of this grill on sear mode and those ceramic rods across the grill get so hot you can sear uh, across the board you can you can cook steak perfectly I love my DCS. I never cook on sear unless I'm searing a steak. Uh, I turn it on low and leave it for 15 minutes and it works just as well and do it on one side and then I cook everything off on the other side. It, it's great. Uh, I love that. But I, I don't use my big green egg for grilling because I got this grill. So I just use the big green egg for smoking and now I want something more convenient. So I got the Rectech and I talk about it so much that so many of you are buying them. They think I get credit. They're not actually an advertiser. Maybe they should be. All right, uh, we will get to the Russia stuff here in a minute, and let me tell you why I'm hesitant to to dive into the Russia stuff, and that is because uh, I'm skeptical of the story to an extent and also how the media is pushing it, and I'll get there after this. But first, as well, I also want to tell you that uh, your time is running out. Today is June 30th, the last day for PPP applications. If you want into the PPP program, uh, go to First Liberty ga.com right now first liberty building and loan they can get you into the program this is really important uh really really is important um if you file your application today they can get you processed today uh and get you in queue they can't guarantee you'll get it but if you get your application in today uh they will at least do their best to get you in uh but today is the last day 
Uh, First Liberty Building and Loan, they're in Noonan. They've been doing this since 1993, helping businesses. They want to help you get into the PPP program. But you need to go to firstlibertyga.com. That's their website, firstlibertyga.com, and fill out the application online. There's an Apply Now button. Get your estimated quarterly filings for employment uh, payroll in order. Get that to them, and they will work to get you into the program. But you got to do it today, folks. Uh, You've got to do it today, or you're going to have all sorts of problems. Uh, But they want to help you. They're willing to help you. There are all sorts of problems getting into the program. It's not their fault. It's the SBA. But today is the last day they're accepting applications at the SBA. So go to FirstLibertyGA.com. I want to read for you a a bit of a story from the Daily Beast, a a source that I find increasingly disreputable. But this is interesting. Uh, Earlier this month, when Quaker Oats announced that Aunt Jemima would get a new name and logo, a 47-year-old truck driver named Larnell Evans Jr. received the news with some ambivalence. Evans is the great-great-grandson of Anna Short Harrington, one of several actresses who played Aunt Jemima at fairs and in advertisements throughout the early 20th century. The company's rebrand and future $5 million donation rang hollow to him. That's the easy way for them to go, Evans told the Daily Beast. I guess you'd say that's saving money. He had a different reckoning in mind. Six years ago, Evans and his nephew, uh, Dan Hunter, tried to confront Quaker, Quaker Oats. In 2014, they filed a federal lawsuit against Pepsi, the corporate owner of Quaker Oats, alleging that Harrington had helped develop Aunt Jemima's signature self-rising pancake mix, and the company had used her likeness as its logo without providing proper compensation. They wanted $2 billion and a share of sales. In Aunt Jemima, Quaker Oats still possesses one of the most recognizable and most valuable trademarks in history. Uh, defendants' actions epitomize what is the worst in corporate America. Uh, da, 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 da. Quaker Oates said Aunt Jemima wasn't a real person or based on an individual. Uh, several actresses were hired to play her, even though she wasn't real. The legal saga fan fi- uh, was five years in the making, and a federal court in Chicago finally barred them from filing further lawsuit. They didn't use a lawyer. Um, at... 50,000 words, the complaint is longer than the Great Gatsby and the King James version of the book of Genesis. Uh, The dismissal of a subsequent filing in Minnesota read, the overlong complaint meanders across a vast landscape pocked by conspiracy. Portions of the complaint are written in what appears to be Chinese, according to a court. And yet the Daily Beast wants you to know that uh, the original complaint bears out in contemporaneous reports. Born in 1897, Anna Short Harrington grew up in Marlboro County, South Carolina, and worked as a sharecropper on a cotton and tobacco plantation for several years in the 1920s. According to a 1995 Newswire article syndicated across the country, Harrington moved to Syracuse, New York, where she worked for several college fraternities. A skilled cook, Harrington earned a reputation for her pancakes, which spread around campus and into city. Harrington became a kind of local celebrity who appeared in regional news and at state fairs, preparing her sought-after recipes for large crowds. It was at one such fair, according to the story of Aunt Jemima, a children's book from John Troy McQueen of South Carolina, that Quaker Oats recruited Harrington to play Aunt Jemima. The position took Harrington across the country to perform at store openings and other public events. By the time of her death, the former sharecropper owned two homes and lived in an area occupied by the black elite of Syracuse. She had her own recipes, 
which was very unique. You didn't hear of people having their own recipes, especially working for Quaker Oats. You would think working for Quaker Oats, whenever whatever they hired them to do, that's what they would do. And she was promoting Quaker Oats products, but she was also promoting her own products. So wait a second. So so they were they they she was promoting Quaker Oats's stuff, but she had her own recipes too. And there's no allegation that they stole her recipe. Um, Quaker Oats rejected the claim that uh, it was based on that they modeled Aunt Jemima on Harrington. Uh, they have stuck to this since at least 1948. They renewed the alleged Harrington trademark and added a note stating the image does not depict a living person. And as recently as 2015, uh, historian Sherry Williams found the long missing grave of Nancy Green, the most famous Aunt Jemima. Quaker Oats refused to fund her grave. The corporate response was that Nancy Green and Aunt Jemima aren't the same, that Aunt Jemima's a fictitious character. So wait, now we've got uh, them calling her. Here, here's the thing. Here, here's the thing. And this is why I know I know where we're headed with this stuff. You've got a white lady reporter at the Daily Beast funding a sympathetic story to uh, Miss Harrington's relatives, never mind that the story notes that she herself was well compensated in her lifetime enough that she could live among the black elite of Syracuse. And now this family comes claiming they want more. You've got another woman who is claimed to uh, by a historian to have been the basis of Aunt Jemima. These people filed lawsuit over their great-great-aunt or, or great-great-grandmother. They want money, and the media treats this all as very sympathetic. Oh, I mean, let me let me let me read you. A good deal of the original complaint bears out in contemporaneous reports about Harrington's life and work. What good deal of the original complaint? That she was hired by Quaker, Quaker Oats, that she had a famous pancake recipe that people loved, and that she went around the country pretending to be Aunt Jemima. But a historian from South Carolina notes she was selling Quaker Oats' recipes, but she had her own recipes as well. And then it turns out that there's a historian, Sherry Williams, who thinks that uh, the most famous Aunt Jemima was Nancy Green and that Aunt Jemima wasn't really based on her either. So they want to present this as some sort of sympathetic story, but they've been thrown out of court and barred from refiling, there's someone else whose family claims that it was their great-great-great-grandmother who was Aunt Jemima. And, but the white people at the Daily Beast want to nurse the grievance, and that's where we're headed. Y'all, I am so freaking tired of well-meaning white liberals telling me how I'm supposed to care about race and that I've got to be anti-racist and that I've got to be anti-racist in their way. You've got Elizabeth Warren on the floor of the Senate. I played this earlier. Listen again. The tens of thousands of Americans protesting the appalling killings of black men and women are calling upon us, on all of us, not just to say the words Black Lives Matter, but to take a tangible step toward making it true by breaking apart the systems that have stolen countless black lives and denied black Americans opportunity and equal treatment. Being race conscious is not enough. It never was. We must be anti-racists. 
we must be anti-racist, says the woman who did her DNA test so she could claim to be American Indian and get some sympathy for it. I, I, I don't think I'll listen to her. Y'all, I really, I, I have friends of mine who are black. Believe it or not, I have good friends who are black. And I think I'll listen to them instead of listening to well-meaning white people tell me what books I should read to, to appreciate black culture, what TV shows I should watch, what streaming I should watch on Netflix, where I should eat, the, the restaurants I should patronize so that I'm at one with the black community. I, I You know, here's what's going to happen. A, a, a bunch of white people are going to virtue signal and they're going to hijack the conversation. And what they're going to do, we're already seeing this, is they want to advance an agenda. They want to advance for everything, whether it's environmentalism or racism, you name it. It's always let's have socialized medicine, universal government run medicine. Let's get rid of private schools and send everyone to public school and give them more money. Let's rearrange our national structure uh, to get rid of those bad Christians and, and, and shut them up. Let's impose new taxes on the rich and take their money and give it to the poor. It's what the left wants for every single thing. It's what they want for this as well. And once they get it, they'll say, oh, we're, we're done. It, it, it's the white liberals wanting reparations. No, no, no word on it. You, you notice uh, even, even the idiot who wrote the 1619 Project and her call for, for reparations, she, she has... No real substantive way to implement it. She quotes someone else, but she's not really worried about the details of implementing it. Where to get the money from? Are they just going to, are they, you know, in this country, you can't just tax white people. So if you want to pay reparations, black people and white people are all going to get taxed and the money is going to go to black people who are then going to get taxed on that income. Circle of taxation. Maybe we need a Disney song for the circle of taxation. Nonetheless, I digress. Um, it, 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 what what all of this is about is white liberals trying to absolve themselves. They don't go to church. They don't ask God to forgive them their sins. They got to do it to the mob. And the way they're doing it is they're going to take over the issue of racial injustice, make themselves feel better and move on. And not a darn thing is going to change. I caught myself that time, Jenny, if you're listening. Nothing is going to change. They just want to feel better about themselves. They don't actually want to solve the problem. In their mind, they solve the problem when they feel better. And that is that is the nature of the secular religion. When your conscious fe- conscience feels clear, you've solved the problem. And not a moment before. But the moment your consciousness feels clear, you can stop worrying about the problem. And who cares if the problem still exists? And so we'll see a bunch of white liberals hijack conversations on race in America, try to implement their left-wing agenda on this that they've tried for everything else. They will get some of it done if Joe Biden gets elected and they'll say, see, problem solved. The real problem is those people who aren't down with us, those people who aren't woke, and we need to shut those people up and, and, and bully them and send the mob after them and scare them. That's what they're going to do. And nothing's actually going to change. Look at Chicago. Look at the killings in Chicago. On a daily basis, people die on the south side of Chicago in gang violence, and they don't say anything. The left doesn't say anything. Well, this is a conversation for the black community. That, that's, that's actually what white liberals say. It's, it, this is for the black community. They, they, they need to deal with why. Why? 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 Are, are, why? 
Why shouldn't we all be dealing with it? You, you know the solution for this? It's going to be painful. It's going to be awkward and difficult. I've got friends of mine. You know one of the greatest ways to deal with the issue, honestly? Promote interracial adoption. You know, there's a movement on the alt-right and the far left right now to, to discourage interracial adoption. You should be promoting interracial adoption. The friends I know who are white, who are most aware of the problems in the black community are the ones who have adopted black children and realize they have to talk to their black children in ways they don't have to talk to their white children. There are things that their if their black child does will get in trouble or, or have the law called on them that their white child would never have. You want to run through the backyard in a neighborhood and you're white? You can probably do it. You want to run through somebody's backyard and you're black? They're probably going to call the cops on you. There's a situational awareness there. And it is awareness that families who engage in interracial adoption develop. But the real solution for the problem is not going to come from the Daily Beast trying to rewrite history to be sympathetic to some family trying to sue over Aunt Jemima pancakes or, or white liberals imposing taxes or say they support reparations knowing that it'll never happen. The real issue and the real solution is going to be found in your local community. You fix your local community. And I fix my local community and I work with other people in my community and you work with people in your community and then word gets out and other people do it in their community. And guess what? Ultimately, we fix the problems in our communities. And because our communities as a whole make up something called the United States of America, we fix the problem in the United States of America. Will we ever stamp out racism? No. You know why? Because racism is a sin and we won't stamp out sinners. But can we certainly improve the situation? Yes, we can. Uh, but we're not going to improve the situation by imposing left-wing policies on a bunch of people in the way the left wants for every single thing out there. That's just not the way it works, people. Every time there's a major societal upheaval, the left says we need to raise taxes on the rich, we need to get rid of private schools, we need to refund public schools, and we need to shut down the military because we should be having bake sales for cakes for, for the military, not for public schools. They, they say this for every single thing. It is a liturgy of the left. It, it is a religious dogmatic belief on the left. Climate change, racism, uh, you name it. We need socialized medicine. We need to get rid of corporations. We need to end capitalism. We need to redistribute wealth. Every single problem, that's their solution, which means they don't really have solutions for the problems. They just have ideology. You know, if you do go to theresurgent.com, uh, you can also listen to the live stream of the show. Um, I, I'm amazed by the number of people in Atlanta. Uh, they've got me in the evening, but they, they want like five hours of me which is, I guess, I'm, I guess I should be flattered. Um, e, okay, uh, I, I, the, the breaking news earlier was that uh, multiple members of the Toledo City Council in Ohio had been uh, arrested by the FBI. Uh, Yvonne Harper, Larry Sykes, and Gary Johnson, uh, council members have been taken into custody by the FBI on uh, bribery charges. It is a developing story. Uh, nothing relevant to Georgia, but the FBI continues to delve into city councils around the country, including Atlanta and now Toledo over stuff like this. You will note, astute listeners of this here program, I waited until the very end to bring up the Russia story. The Russia story is uh, that a Russian military unit has been paying members of the Taliban uh, bonuses, essentially paying them money to kill Americans. 
In 2010, it was reported in the media that the Taliban were being paid by the Iranian government to kill Americans. 2010, hmm, who was president in 2010? That would be Barack Obama. And what did Obama do? He cut a deal with Iran. And the media was perfectly fine. Now, now allegedly, there are reports that the Russians are doing it. You know, they're, they're unconfirmed reports. The Russians deny it, but we could expect the liars in Russia to deny it. Uh, we shouldn't believe a Russian denial. Uh, but uh, it appears that there was a written briefing for the president. The president may not have seen. Uh, and that the vice president himself was not notified. And Democrats were invited to go to the White House to learn more. Here's Adam Kinzinger. You were among the Republicans who were briefed on this earlier today. How is it that no Democratic lawmakers were briefed on this? Doesn't that politicize this entire situation when the Republicans uh, in the House uh, up on Capitol Hill are briefed on this before Democrats? Yeah, you'll have to ask Denny Hoyer because uh, last night Mark Meadows called him and invited him to the briefing and to do a briefing. In fact, I guess they're now doing it tomorrow morning. But as of our briefing, uh, he made it clear that he hadn't heard back from Stenny Hoyer. So, look, if you're, you know, if somebody wants to use this as a political thing, it's fine. Everything's political nowadays. Where I'm at is we need to right, let the process work and get to an answer. Uh, you say everything is political nowadays, but there's nothing political about the Russians putting bounties right, that's my on point. the heads of U.S. Uh, forces in yeah. Afghanistan. Isn't this the type of situation where it, it shouldn't be uh, red yeah. state versus blue state? That I fully should, agree. The Republicans Jim. and Democrats should have been brought up to the White House yeah. and briefed on this. I fully agree. We were brought up, the Democrats were offered, and they didn't go. Stinney Hoyer didn't respond. That's a question for him. It's not a question for me. From what I understand, too, they've now decided to do it tomorrow morning. So hopefully they see the same thing we did. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll all come out and look at this and say we're united against any Russian threat to the United States. Yeah, the Democrats didn't want to participate. They, they rushed the story. Now, here's what we know is there's no evidence that it actually happened. The Russians wanted to do it, but we're not aware of any evidence of it actually happening. Uh, and there's still more to the story as it develops. And I want to tread cautiously on stories like this because time and again, we see these stories coming out of the media with leaks from the intelligence community about the Trump administration, and then they turn out not necessarily to be so. And I personally think we have to tread cautiously when it comes to these situations. Uh, and the reason we have to tread cautiously when it comes to these situations is because the media tends to put out, uh, at first blush, the media tends to put out the worst possible take, the worst possible scenario, uh, the worst possible conclusions. And then slowly but surely over time, the media corrects the story, adds more facts, makes it more nuanced. Uh, but time and time and time again, we see these sorts of things. Time and time and time again, we see the the national media build up these stories about the Trump administration, inevitably leaks from the intelligence community, from careerists in the intelligence community who aren't fans of the president, and then they slowly but surely wind down and walk it all back. And that's why I've treaded cautiously with the story. I it, The story came out late Friday. It developed on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, and now there are new facts being added to it, and I figure by Thursday, 
I'll probably be able to have some actual insight into the story to give it to you other than the the media rush of judgment against the president where everything is put in the worst possible light. And then they put in a correction on the last page of the newspaper that everybody, nobody ever sees to try to, recre- to, to correct the story. I, I think I'll just wait and get the facts right the first time instead of rushing.